Luke Story, welcome to the show. Hey man, great to be here. It's always fun to be on a podcast uh, of which you are a fan and I'm a fan of yours. Thank you, brother. I, uh, I get to uh, hear about your hunt today, I think. Oh man. Oh boy. Yeah. It's actually the first time I've really talked about it uh, publicly. Uh, you know, not that, not that I have such a huge impact on the world, but uh, it's definitely out of the realm of things that I talk about on my podcast and uh, social media and things like that. So it was um, definitely an incredible experience and one that deserves to be unpacked Let's um let's start by uh, just kind of tell people who you are and, and about your show so they get a sense if they haven't heard you before, um, you know, what you do. And then uh, I think that'll give some context to, you know, how we arrive at this conversation. Sure. So I do a number of things. I think the thing I'm probably most known for and have the most uh, reach with is my podcast called The Lifestylist. Uh, on which our host Daniel's been a guest a couple times. Actually, you were my second guest. I was I was so grateful. I always, um, you know, I, it's one of those things like don't forget where you came from. You know, I started <laughs> my thing for, I started my my sort of health and wellness uh, brand from scratch about six years ago, and um, and you were kind enough to come on and. I probably had three listeners to that episode at that point, uh, but yeah, I uh, come a long way, huh? Oh my God, yeah, it's crazy. I just I just kind of keep you know, the consistency and hopefully the quality of content that I put out going. And it's amazing to see it snowball over the years. But yeah, I, uh, I'm a former musician uh, that had a hard time making a living at that. I fell into, <laughs> so strange in the context of a conversation about hunting, but uh, <laughs> I lived in Hollywood for 32 years. I just moved uh, to uh, Austin, Texas recently. Congratulations. And um, yeah, thanks, man. It's good to be free. I tell you what. Uh, or at least free as you can be with an all caps name and a social security number and birth certificate. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> not quite sovereign, but I'm looking into it, put it that way. Some listeners will know what I'm referring to. Uh, I ended up spending uh, 17 years as a fashion stylist in Hollywood, which means that you you know get the clothes for celebrities on the red carpet, music videos, tours, stuff like that. Um, but all the while I was uh, working on healing you know, many years of addiction and alcohol issues and um, all of that stemmed from childhood trauma and just kind of growing up uh, in, a, in a rough way. And uh, when I was 26, I was fortunate enough to be graced with sobriety. And that led me into all things physical healing, alternative medicine, uh, spirituality, uh, meditation, exploring consciousness, going to India, uh, doing Kundalini yoga for a number of years, just, I just became really committed to working on myself. So I was kind of living this double life where I was working in the Hollywood machine and it's vapid, you know, sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, nothing against, you know, I love movies and music. I'm, I'm all for the arts and entertainment, but, uh, you know, I, I really, I really never fit into that world. And is I, it I really entertaining remember, anymore though? <laughs> I mean, you have to look pretty hard. There's some documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. There's an incredible, <laughs> incredible television show called wild fed. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm sure something <laughs> not made in know, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. It might have something to do with Hollywood in a, in a remote way. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, I spent many years in that career. And then on the side was just really committed to my recovery and my own growth and exploring consciousness in a multitude of ways. And I just started to have a realization years ago that I just was not living my purpose. And I was 
staying in that career just out of security and perhaps some egoic validation because it looks good on paper when you work with celebrities, even though it's much less glamorous than people could ever imagine in most (laughs) cases. Uh, So I thought, you know, what's the first thing I could do to just kind of branch off and do my own thing? And I was such a fan of podcasts uh, and audiobooks. I think a lot of my growth really came from, I mean, this is going way back, but I used to get these cassette tape programs from, you know, Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra and these different spiritual teachers. And I would listen to those tapes just over and over and over again. This is going back to the nineties. Remember when uh, they would come in those big, uh, it was almost like a trapper keeper type. Yeah, exactly. It was like that plastic, (laughs) pop it open. Yeah. Yeah. And they have like six or eight cassettes in there and I would listen to those. Mm -hmm. And then, and then they became CDs. Uh, you know, you could get an audio book on CD. I remember the power of now by Eckhart Tolle. I mean, I've probably listened to that book. I mean, and read it hundreds and hundreds of times. I mean, I just, I really had to reprogram my subconscious because I was so dysfunctional. And so, uh, you know, and then those, those, uh, those uh, CDs became MP3s and then we had podcasts. And so since so much of my learning and really unlearning came from audio formats, I just decided to launch a podcast. So anyway, that, uh, was a success and is a success. And that led to doing a lot of public speaking at different conferences and expos and whatnot. Uh, and then I started putting on workshops of my own where I would, curate, uh, experiences for people. This is of course, pre pre lockdown and all of that. Um, and now I'm really just kind of continuing to do the same work. And I, I, you know, since abandoned all of my Hollywood uh, career and all of that. And, uh, my focus is really just inspiring people to heal themselves and transform on all levels. So I talk a lot about, um, ways to expand your consciousness and, uh, different practical ways to uh, incorporate spirituality into your life and meditation and breath work. And uh, of course, keeping the physical body um, in fit condition through biohacking and all of these different ways that we can find autonomy within our physical beings so that we have the vitality and hopefully longevity to complete the soul mission. <laughs> so my, my deal is, uh, is really a mind, body, a spirit, a spirit approach to, to living and, uh, the hunting experience that we're going to unpack to me really was an exploration in uh, self-discovery and getting back to what it means to really be a fully integrated human. And, um, you know, I sensed that that was a piece that was missing from my experience. And as you, and I'm sure your listeners know, uh, this is something that human beings have been doing the entire time we've been here on the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, my experience with it was earlier in life and for a number of different reasons, uh, you know, didn't become part of my adult life at all. And, um, so yeah, that's kind of what led me into that experience really was just wanting to get closer to the human experience and also the spiritual nature of consciousness as it passes in and out of beings through the process of birth and death. And that's exactly what it ended up being. Wow. Hey, well said on all of that, man. And I think if people were to um, go over to your podcast and see, you know, the lineup of guests that you have, the kind of topics that you talk about, you know, you wouldn't imagine you on a hunt, right? Yeah. I mean, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real peacenik, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, and I think that's, that's part of the story and part of why I felt this pull to really find some balance in my 
perspective and the energy with which I carry myself in the world. You know, I grew up with a mom in uh, Northern California who was, uh, she doesn't like it when I call her a hippie. And I guess she wasn't, she was technically a mod, you know, she was from Berkeley and grew up in the sixties. She always says, don't call me a hippie. They didn't shower. Like I was very clean, but uh, you know, there was incense burning in the house and uh, other herbs burning in the house and, you know, the almond <laughs> brothers on the turntable. And right. we were, definitely not about that hunting life. By contrast, my father, uh, who still hunts, was a, you know, born and raised, actually he was born in Chicago, but he lived his entire life in Colorado and can tell you every nook and cranny of every mountain and landscape of that state. I mean, he, yeah, he's a like back he's, country hunter, right? Yeah. Uh, he's a human map. I mean, anywhere we go, it's like, oh, that mine right there was, uh, was dug in 1842 and they started pulling gold out of, you know, he's just, right. he's just a mountain man. So as a kid, um, I had this contrast and I'm really grateful for it because there were certain, I would say strengths that were instilled in me by my dad, who was a really tough customer. I mean, he's done a lot of work on himself over the years and, you know, he, he listens to Joe Dispenza meditations now and, you know, he's, he's worked a lot on his, um, I guess, emotional intelligence and, and spiritual connection. But there was a real contrast between mom and dad. It was all like unicorns and rainbows, California, uh, you know, life with mom. And then with dad, it was like rugged hunting and fishing trips. And just, you know, he, I mean, he was like a hunting guide and a ski patrolman. He raced stock cars. He raced snowmobiles. He was a rodeo star. I mean, he was, he was a tough dude. Uh, not only physically, but also just his stance in life. So, um, you know, my early experiences hunting and fishing and things like that were just, they were a bit too extreme for the soft, sensitive kind of artistic kid that I, I think I was inherently just kind of born leaning more that way, but definitely growing up primarily with, um, the feminine influence. Uh, it was, it was a lot and it wasn't something that I ever, was interested in. And, uh, you know, to the credit of my dad now, as I'm, you know, getting ready to probably have a kid or two myself, um, you know, looking back, it's like, I really hated hunting and fishing when I was a kid, <laughs> but, but my, that was the only way my dad could connect with me. And those were the things that he loved when he was a kid. I mean, he started hunting when he was, I think seven years old, he was carrying around, um, a little 22, caliber revolver, which I have actually in the other room. It's one of my most prized possessions. Um, so he was hunting his whole life. And, you know, I think he thought, well, he wanted to do what was fun and what he was good at. Right. And he has this kid. So if he liked riding horses and, and mules and hunting and fishing and doing these really rugged, um, trips into the outback, then I would too. And I don't think he was kind of tapped into my nature enough to know that many of those experiences were pretty terrifying and definitely, um, just a bit extreme for my nervous system, frankly. <laughs> There's a lot there, man. I, I wish we could yeah. tease it all apart. I, I think one piece that stands out to me is, uh, you know, we were talking about the lifestyle you grew up in with your mom in Southern California and, and then thinking about what's become of the place, you know, like, um, you kind of were talking about that hippie life and there was so much of that going on, but it's like, uh, it's just really interesting what's become of the place. And then a person like you would find yourself going to a place like Texas, which is reputation is much more like akin to what your dad's story was. Oh yeah. Mom's, he was thrilled. You know? <laughs> yeah. My dad was stoked when I moved here. He's like, finally, he's been trying yeah. to get me to get out of California right. for 30 years, you know? 
But yeah, I mean, kind of got to the point though, right? Where like you, I think that when I see video of, of what it's like, you know, with the the tent cities and all this stuff going on down there now, man, it's amazing to me. Um, but yeah, so that part's really interesting. And and also how you're, I don't know, there's like, uh, you got all those seeds planted as a kid. So that's like really helpful. You know, <laughs> I wish kind of that yeah. my dad, you know, I wish I had a dad who was a hunter, even because I was like you as a kid, I, I didn't see myself being interested in any of these things. And, but I guess the biggest piece I take out of that is um, the changing demographics, like how things are shifting. And um when you look at hunting, you know, I'm a good example of this. Like the other day I got um, invited to do this podcast here in Maine called Big Woods Bucks. And um, it's it's, um, hosted by this guy, Hal Blood. He's very famous hunter up here for the type of hunting he does. And I, they, they had reached out to me, but didn't really know who I was or what I was about. Even like I, I don't, when I walked into the room, they had a little studio. I went up to uh, Rangeley, Maine and, and I walk in and they're looking at me like, is this guy at the right place? <laughs> like they, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. They were like, totally. and they, and we had a great time and they really enjoyed, you know, we had a great conversation and the podcast did really well, but they just were not expecting someone who looked like me. And yeah. who spoke like me and, and I don't, I, they were, they, they were at first, they were like, are you like a chef or something? <laughs> like, no, not really. But, um, but you know, obviously the, the demographic in hunting's changing because all of these people are finding themselves through different avenues drawn towards it. And, um, it's the, the stereotype isn't going to hold for very much longer, you know, and it's people like you who, who take a step toward it that kind of, I think just the industry is going to have to like adjust and shift and figure that out. Right. Um, tell us like what, um, what were the triggers for you that led you to even start to consider it? Because, um, you know, you have a nice buttoned up thing going on, you know, you have this amazing podcast. It's very successful. You know, I've watched your, your, the rise of your, um, notoriety in the, world of biohacking and health and all of the, you know, watching you become a player there and establish yourself. And you know, like, it's not like you needed to go hunting, right. But something called you to, yeah. it, right. Like the rest well, of your life was, is already is going in a sort of, I see, I see the overlap, but I don't think that everybody would. So I'm kind of, I'm curious. I'm curious as to how people are going to perceive this particular adventure because I'm I'm going to be putting out a podcast I already recorded uh, with Monsal Denton of Sacred Hunting, who I know has been on your show, and he's a a friend of mine uh, for a few years now, or an acquaintance that's become a friend. And uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what people are going to think when that podcast comes out because we go into great detail about the whole experience. And yeah, I'm interviewing on my show, Bruce Lipton and Byron Katie and Joe Dispenza and all these spiritual teachers and uh, people that are exploring consciousness with plant medicines and uh, psychedelic research and all this. So to just pop out and be like, and guess what? I shot a wild boar is kind of, you know, <laughs> it's definitely uh, something I'm, I'm being thoughtful about because I guess really the intention for me and back more to the specifics of your question I think you and I share the view that, I mean, it's just so clear to me, uh, at least I think, you know, this is my perception of the human condition is that we have over time, I guess, going back to uh, the agricultural revolution um, and the, you know, the really the demise of the hunter gatherer human, we've just gotten so far adrift from how we've evolved to live that I think you can trace most, if not all, pathology 
whether it be psycho-spiritual, emotional, physical, to the fact that we've become so far removed from our natural life way. And of course, there are benefits. You know, we don't have black plagues and, you know, who knows what improvements we've had. That's an agricultural thing. Let's just be clear. (laughs) Okay, okay, there you go. But you're right. We don't have massive parasite infestations and lice. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I guess that that, that is to say that I mean, I love the convenience of life now that I don't yeah. have to sleep outdoors and, you know, do all the things. I mean, I'm, I'm not that thick skinned, so it's not to discount, um, industry or agriculture completely. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I've enjoyed a, a, a fairly easy life, relatively speaking, one could say, but, um, you know, when it comes to just the mental health of our species and what we see going on now, and as someone who's really committed to my own physical health and do a lot of teaching around that. Uh, now they have a word for it called biohacking. It used to just be called a health nut. And I guess both would apply, but all of the interventions that I spend so much time, energy and money uh, researching and using are really just making up for the deficit of not being outdoors enough. I mean, it's just, yep. it's that exactly. simple. So, you know, whether we're talking about uh, blue light exposure, EMF exposure, food that's not actually food, poison in the food, all of this stuff um, is part and parcel to why we're so sick as a species and the disconnection from the natural world and from things like hunting and foraging and uh, just being out in the elements and, uh, you know, having bodies and minds that have the fortitude to withstand heat and cold and uh, just be in the elements, uh, I think is just it's the root of the problem. So what led me out of, you know, sort of curiosity into the hunting experience was just this innate sense that there is something missing from my human experience, just subjectively as one person, that my ancestors did this and then I stopped it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so there's that. And then, I mean, and then there's like a really more deep and philosophical, spiritual element to it too, which perhaps is just another thread we could go down. But uh, it's also born out of a sense of hypocrisy, if not some degree of guilt as being someone who subsists mostly on meat um, and used to be a vegetarian. I know you and I share that. I never went raw vegan. That was a lot. I loved uh, pizza, but, um, you know, I was a vegetarian for, I don't know, probably about 10 years. And because I saw these videos about factory farms and I just wanted no part of that cruelty and torture. And I still don't. Um, and I also don't want to participate in the factory farming of monocrop vegetables that probably cause harm to more living beings than having a couple cows in a pasture. But the fact that I'm not willing to go get my hands dirty because, ew, it's gross, there's blood, or I don't want to feel sad if the animal dies at my hands and all these things. It's like this sort of really disempowered, you know, um, I don't want to see the inside of a slaughterhouse or, you know, I might visit a farm, but I don't really want to see them kill the animal, which I did Mm -hmm. the other day on a bison farm, by the way, which perhaps we could share about as well. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that too. But it's, um, you know, it's like, I'm not being a real human and and that's part of the human experience of, of natural humans. And so if I'm going to eat meat and I source my meat as ethically as possible, I, I work with a, um, 
farm called Belcampo out in California. And I get my meat from there. I have been to their farm. I have toured the slaughterhouse. I mean, there were regulations, USDA regulations that prohibit you from hanging out while they're doing a slaughter, but I really got as close as I could to it. I held the baby pigs that were going to become my bacon. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that was kind of the first step in going like, Luke, you've got to get your consciousness around the process of life and death and the natural ecological system that the creator put here on earth. I mean, it's just, everything is eating everything all the time. And so if I'm going to eat things all the time, and then if I were to be buried naturally or die in nature, things would be eating my body and the energy that was my body would become the energy that becomes something else. And I see this very logical, um, system here. And yet I felt divorced from it and, and really afraid of it, you know? And I think as someone who just, I just enjoy doing shadow work, you know? And it's like, there's this shadow over here of like, I don't know, it was scary when I was a kid because of, I think the, you know, just the harshness of the conditions uh, with which my dad brought me hunting and all of that. There's like this little scared boy inside that doesn't want to face that this is part of life. And I don't want to get too close to it. And in my practice of evolution, when I come up against something that I'm afraid of and I look into it, I just have a drive in me that's got to push through that edge. And, you know, an edge for me now is like having a family, having kids. It's been something I've been really afraid of for a number of reasons. And it, it's the same with that. It's like, hmm, this is a very natural human experience. Why am I afraid of this? And in going inward through meditation and different practices, I can see, aha, there's, you know, there's something there that I don't want to face. And, and, and death is one of those things. And so the prospect of maybe the biggest thing, right. That's most humans, especially, you know, totally. So, you know, part of that inner journey is discovering that there's a lot of growth for me in not only experiencing death and embracing it, but also being the one who caused it. And so it was much more kind of a philosophical uh, drive that led me to it. However, I got to say, I don't know that I would have, um, I don't know that it would have been in my experience if I hadn't been invited. You know, the opportunity was presented and there was just a feeling inside of like, Luke, uh, you got to do this. I didn't really want to do it, to be honest. It wasn't like something I had a deep desire for, but again, it was just, I felt that edge and I felt yeah. that fear and that apprehension. And I felt that it would be healthy for me, um, as a man to go have that experience. Um, I want to jump in here. Um, I really appreciate everything you just shared. And there's a really good lesson in there for people who are picking it out, which is when you feel that edge, you know, turn into it, not away from it. You got to lean into that. If you want to grow and if you want to be one of those people, you know, who, you admire in life. It's like you get there by leaning into that discomfort when you feel it. So I appreciate how you uh, raised that. So true. Um, so true. I have this question. It's sort of, I don't really ever talk about this actually on the show and I'm, um, but it's something I think a lot about. So I want to ask about your relationship throughout your life to weapons and in particular, just even how the word lands. It's, um, you know, I'll say a couple things real quick. You know, I've always been really fascinated and drawn to weapons of many different types and I'm very comfortable around them and so comfortable around them that I can forget sometimes that 
how symbolic they are uh, to people and the connotations that they sometimes can have. And, you know, being married to a Canadian woman where, you know, there's much less weapon culture up there that comparatively to here, it's been really interesting to watch her relationship to weapons change because I'm somebody who keeps weapons in the house and has weapons around and will carry a weapon. And, um, you know, now she loves to go shooting and, you know, she's quite comfortable around them. In fact, prefers that they're around, um, as she's grown to comfort with them. Um, but I think that's one of those, you know, when, when you take somebody who's ne- who hasn't hunted before and, and, isn't sure if that's something they'd ever want to do. There's the death component, which is, I think you've been talking about, that's probably the biggest part. It's not wanting to kill or having ethical issues and concerns around that. But there's this other piece of selecting and choosing a weapon and then using that weapon against a living creature. So, um, yeah, what's your, what's your history with weapons? And then, you know, how did that part of it feel to you coming from, you know, the kundalini yoga world as an example (laughs) (laughs) hey uh you know sikhs carry around their little their little knife on the side you know yeah Uh, i don't know if they'd want you to call it little but okay (laughs) yeah yeah their big sword sorry (laughs) i'm like Uh, you know that's something with my wife where it's been like because you know there's that tendency to say things sometimes like oh that little gun or like oh that little knife it's like please don't call any of these little (laughs) you can say it's a small one Uh, you know, Daniel, this is a really great question and I actually had not even explored this, but as you're, uh, as you're presenting the question, some things come to mind and one is, yeah, the, the word weapon, my immediate association with that is danger. And it's, um, I immediately associate it with a perpetrator. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and combat more so than I associate it as a useful tool. So, you know, uh, a hunter gatherer person making some arrowheads is not making, I mean, they're making a weapon, but I would look at that as they're making a tool. But when you start to migrate up into swords, knives, guns, uh, then I think, yeah, I think that I view them as something, uh, kind of scary. And that is probably partially due to, uh, media, right. Growing up with television and movies wherein weapons were used, um, to kill people. Right. Whereas again, you know, I can't help, but always just kind of go back. Like what would it have been like before? I think, um, had I grown up, um, in a community where weapons were used as tools, right. Even if they were, you know, used to defend your clan or to go on the offense, defense, uh, kill animals, um, you know, process animals, et cetera, I think I would have viewed them much differently. So I guess part of that really was unpacking it and changing my perspective on, uh, weapons. And you, you know how you said like a, um, you said like watching arrows get made, you'd think they're a tool, but they, because they're a tool for taking life that makes them categorically a weapon. Right. And I, cause one thing that comes is interesting to me is how I don't, I'll use a fishing rod to catch a fish, but I don't think of a fishing rod as a weapon. It's not, it's a trap, but it's not a weapon. It's like a trap right, you hold right. in your hand, you know, whereas a bow or a rifle is, is clearly a weapon. And then in gun culture, um, you'll often, you know, when the second amendment arguments come up, what you'll hear from gun people all the time. And, and I'll say this a lot is, Hey, it's a tool. And we'll be like, it's like a hammer. Like, 
it's a tool. And it's like, yeah, it is a tool, but it has like the job of taking life. So <laughs> that's why it's a weapon. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? It's like right. a yeah, hammer's yeah. job is not to do that. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. And the, the other thing in, in kind of unpacking the, the weapon part of the conversation is as a kid, I love weapons. You know, I remember my dad giving me these huge buck knives and stuff, uh, when I would visit him in Colorado, because of course that's what he would have wanted as a kid. Um, and then I'd get back home to California and oftentimes my mom would take it away. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, he would they were me, illegal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he would, you know, I'd be, I'd be flying home at 10 years old with a machete in my bag, you know? So, I mean, I can, I can kind of see her, her logic there. Uh, but there yeah. were, you know, I mean, there were always a gun rack in my dad's truck. We were always shooting. Uh, I would, uh, sometimes, when he wasn't around, uh, do a little shooting on the sly. Uh, another thing I used to do, which is insane. And I'm so, I mean, I've got to have some good karma here, but when he, we'd go, he was a, he owned an ex excavating company. And so we'd go out on these job sites and stuff, or he'd go out and prospect for elk and just leave me in the truck. And I'd be sitting there bored to tears, you know, listening to Willie Nelson, eight tracks, just like dying of boredom. <laughs> and, um, and he'd, you know, he'd always have firearms in the car. He'd usually have a you know, like a revolver under the seat and, um, you know, a couple rifles in the gun rack. And then he'd have a bunch of ammunition in the glove box. And out of boredom, I used to take these rounds and put them on rocks and just smash them with rocks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I guess I, you know, I don't, I don't, maybe you could tell me like if, if, if a round was pointed toward you and you smashed it with a rock, would it oh, discharge you know and go That's into it. you? That's interesting. Um, picture how this actually works. So you have uh, a barrel that is the the diameter of the bore of your barrel is actually a little bit smaller than your bullet. So oh, wow. if you took a bullet, you know, out of the round, so you removed it from the casing, you couldn't drop it down from the muzzle. It's thicker. So what's happening inside, you know, you have the, the, the lands and grooves. That's that rifling that goes down that puts the spin on the bullet. That's actually cutting into the bullet. Um, because those lands, the parts that stick up in that spiraling fluting in there, um, cuts into the copper uh, on the, you know, if the bullet's monolithic or, or into the jacketing of it, if it's a lead bullet. So um, what's happening is once you seal the breach behind the bullet, now all the forces when you hit the primer and that primer ignites and then sets off the powder charge, when that goes off, that wants to blow up in 360 degrees, but it can't because it's all locked inside there. So it's only route of escape is through the barrel. Uh, and then it's channeled to that high velocity. So if you were to, I don't know, like I wouldn't recommend anybody go out and smash bullets with rocks, but without <laughs> anything to channel or contain the pressures, I don't think that you could really, I don't think it would do what you would picture it would do. Okay, um, like good. Fl go flying into something, but at the same time, I I've never I don't know actually yeah. it doesn't seem like a great idea. Regardless, maybe but. maybe don't do a shotgun shell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think I ever did that. But you know what's funny is my you know my dad would be off wherever he was, and he'd come back and he'd be like, "Luke, did you hear those shots? Who was shooting?" I'd be like, "I don't know, Dad." I mean, like that happens so many really? times. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know. It's funny. I don't think I've ever told him either. I'm gonna have to call you him. Gotta up come and be like, clean. Yeah, I'd be like, Dad, remember when you used to hear all these mystery shots when, uh, when we were literally the only people for miles? Um, that was me smashing your. So uh, you you would hit him with a rock that would set off the primer and the and it would yeah and it would I pop just was, off. I just like the sound. It was like yeah. lighting firecrackers, you know. But anyway, yeah. I, I digress. So you know, back to the to the point of weapons. Uh, 
there were, uh, so that was like on dad's side and, and I actually liked shooting. I mean, it was a little nerve wracking, uh, but I enjoyed it. And we used to go shoot woodchucks just for sport and stuff. And, you know, even back to the, you know, the current hunting experience, I love shooting them, but then we'd walk up and see them blown to bits and I would feel so bad. You know, I feel mm-hmm. so guilty, even fishing as a kid, man. It's like, I love fishing because it's fun. Right. I mean, you know that, but you know, then we'd, we'd pull these trout out of these brooks and streams and whatnot and, uh, you know, smash them on the head with a rock. And like, I hated that part or, you know, they'd swallow the hook and you'd rip their guts out. I just, I was just such a sensitive kid, you know? So, and that's good by the way. I think it's really, I think you want that, you know, not having that, that lack of empathy is kind of like sociopathy. So, you know, so, or, or somebody who goes further into sight, you know, a psychopath who actually wants to go out and, and, and harm others. Um, I have that too. I think that's just so important. It keeps us from going too far. Cause as, as hunters where we're the kind of arbiters of death and life in a sense, um, yeah, it seems like it's a very good thing to have that restraint that comes from the emotions. And one thing I want to point out real quick is that I think a lot of non hunters assume that most hunters don't have that, those feelings. Um, and I think they would be, and the thing is, is in the hunter versus non-hunter arguments, hunters are, you know, how arguments are, you typically don't feel real vulnerable, (laughs) like, uh, like getting real vulnerable in an argument. Right. So, so it's not like hunters are like revealing how emotional they feel about this when they're, you know, arguing the merits of hunting, but you see it when you go hunting all the time, you see it in people. You know, I mentioned that show Big Woods Bucks. I got this, um, I got this direct message the other day after the show came out with them. And it was a guy saying, Hey, you know, my, my family's connected to that group of guys and I've been following you and I wanted to hunt, but I thought I would never hunt with them because I thought they wouldn't be able to appreciate the kind of person I am and how I look at wildlife. He's like, after hearing your conversation with them, I realized they do and I'm going to be able to connect with them, but it's just something people don't, you know, I, I just think it's a much more universal thing. I think some people are so sensitive that they couldn't probably take life. And then there's people like yourself who are like, Hey, I'm pretty sensitive to this, but if I want to, I can do it. Um, yeah. you know, but yeah. I, if I'm around somebody who seems to be taking pleasure in the killing part, that's like somebody, it's like, I don't really want to, I don't really want to be that person, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I definitely would not be someone who takes pleasure <laughs> in it. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it, it was challenging, you know, and, and to that point, I think it's interesting. And I, you know, as my, as an adult, I'm not around a lot of hunters. I mean, I know you, my dad, a few of my friends here in Austin hunt uh, quite regularly. And there is always a lot of emphasis on getting a clean shot and minimizing the suffering of the animal. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a high priority with anyone in my circle that hunts is it's a really big deal. Uh, you don't just take a half-ass shot with your bow or rifle just because it's fun, you know, like you, you want to be very mindful about that. And I, I respect that. And that's one of the reasons I, I ventured out with the crew that I did, uh, because I, I knew that there was a certain level of, uh, well, actually not a certain level, a really high level of reverence, not only for the experience. I mean, some of the high, probably uh, you're realistically some of the highest that you're going to find yeah. as far as the emphasis on that. You know, I, I wanted to ask about that with, with, Monsal Denton and the Sacred Hunting crew and format, it's a really interesting way to onboard into hunting. It's an, it's an unusual pathway, right? <laughs> so bet. if you hadn't, I guess that's like the first question is if you hadn't come through that gateway, 
do you think this is something that you might never have done? You know, it's tough to say, um, hypothetically speaking, because I'm someone that really relies on my intuition and that still small voice within that is a yes or a no. And so had I been invited by someone else who I felt was, um, you know, a compassionate, kind, awake person who hunts for, um, for a, a meaningful reason, I think it's probably within the scope of my experience, especially now living in Texas where hunting is so prevalent and so mm -hmm. many people I know that are, you know, great people, conscious people doing uh, amazing work in the world and really contributing to society in meaningful ways. Uh, I think I probably would have done it. You know, I, I mean, I've had opportunities. My dad stopped hunting, uh, big game, God, uh, many, many years ago. And then he started, he would still go out and chase them around, but just take pictures of them. Yeah. But he's been hunting coyotes, uh, ever since he quit hunting big game. And, uh, you know, he's invited me out a bunch of times to hunt coyotes. And I just, I'm just not interested in shooting something that I'm not going to eat just mm -hmm. because they're considered to be a nuisance, uh, on the landscape or, uh, you know, or just cause it's fun and you, you have that bug to hunt. I, I don't think I would have done it. Um, I don't think I would have hunted coyotes or something that was kind of more for sport or, you know, population control or whatever reasons yeah, my dad might have, stories for people have for it. I mean, I told my dad, you've eaten coyote. And he was just like, he, he didn't even, he couldn't even imagine you eating bear. You know, he's like, ew, no. bear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, he's, he's old school, I guess, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. I mean, well, I think you know, not that old school. Cause you go back far enough and it's pretty common, but then he's like right, right. middle I, school, right? He's middle school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, said, well said. Um, but yeah, so, you know, and there's another piece to this too, Daniel is a following that, that inner guidance, you know, um, an example of this, and this might be a bit foreign to some of your listeners, but, um, in terms of the ceremonial and intentional use of plant medicine, psychedelics, etc., uh, in the circles that I run in, I get, um, invites here and there. And, it's not ever something I plan on doing. I, I don't sit around going, Oh, I can't wait to do Bufo again or go on a mushroom journey or, you know, go to Costa Rica and do ayahuasca. It's, it's not like something that I think about or I crave or, or have any plan to do, but inevitably how these have, you know, unfolded for me in the past couple of years of exploration has been, I get a text, I get a call and I go, huh. And if I just forget about it, then that was a no. But if it sticks with me and I'm like, huh, I feel like I need to answer that text or that mm -hmm. call. And there's just, there's a feeling it's like, it's, it's hard really to describe. I guess one could say I, the best way is just, there's an intuitive pull. There's like a, uh, an attractor field of sorts there. That's going, Luke, you're supposed to do this. And, you know, after spending the past couple of decades learning how to live, uh, by my heart, less than, less than the mind and feeling into that intuition. Uh, I think it's pretty likely that, I could have been invited by someone else that uh, resonated with me uh, in terms of their worldview and how they operate in the world that I, that I would have done it. But with this one, it was a for sure. Yes. Immediately when I got the invite. And um, I think that's because I knew that this was an edge for me. And if I was going to do it, it would have to be something that I approach with a lot of depth and reverence and careful consideration. And I wanted my first real, you know, well, not first experience, but first experience as an adult uh, to have more depth and meaning rather than just mm -hmm. like, oh, I did it. I shot an animal. Like I needed it to be more transformative. And it, and I was right. My intuition yeah. as always was 
spot on. And it was uh, an incredibly, um, incredibly meaningful experience. Can you tell us a little bit about the plant medicine component of this? Because, and also I want to make sure we're, we clarify for people that these are two things happening in the same time frame, you know, as far as like uh, the weekend or whatever, but not at the same time, just so that nobody yeah. gets confused about that. <laughs> no, but, but firearms, at, yeah, <laughs> firearms and psychedelics <laughs> uh, don't go well together. I would definitely not advise they, that. You know, they never really have either. <laughs> I can't think of a time where the two have ever really been too entwined, but maybe some of those CIA experiments on the military that happened. Right. But, uh, well, you want to know something funny on that note, uh, a guy I know here, who's an outfitter who's born and raised in Texas, been hunting his entire life. Uh, <laughs> he, you know, he's a bit of a, um, avant-garde fellow. Uh, he told me that he and his buddies go out and take copious amounts of mushrooms and go fishing and hunting like while on mushrooms and they do it at night, uh, not the fishing, but the hunting, uh, specifically of, uh, wild boars. Uh, they do it with night vision on mushrooms. So <laughs> not something that <laughs> I, I am not recommending this, <laughs> Me this either. particularly from a legal standpoint. Uh, Me either. <laughs> that's yeah. I can imagine, um, I've had some experiences with ayahuasca where my sensory systems became, well, you know how it is when, when people talk about any of the entheogens, there's always this assumption that when you're on them, you will be, you won't be in the right frame of mind to do things. But then when you're on them, you're like, oh, I'm in a better frame of mind than usually, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, especially yeah. your senses and such. So, oh, um, so true because you're, you know, when you're in these experiences and I can speak to uh, the weekend and how that transpired, but when you're in these experiences and maybe not for everyone all the time, I mean, there's a lot of intentionality and structure, I think that is really important to consider when venturing uh, into these realms, but you're, you're opening up senses that are beyond the physical senses and you're experiencing life in an interdimensional way. And so you're uh, able to sense and experience things that are so far out of your normal day-to-day -day waking state. Um, almost like how you experience things in a dream state, but obviously your body is um, inoperable while you're dreaming, right? But in those experiences, I agree. I mean, I've felt just this, especially when in nature, I've experienced with such amplification, the subtleties of all life around me, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the song, the song of a bird, the movement of a tree. I mean, these things become otherworldly and so enthralling and fascinating when, uh, under the influence of these different substances, it's, but you it's also incredible. understand them like a phenomenon, like wind or rain or watching an ant colony or something like that. And you, you understand, it's almost as if you always could understand, but your civilized mind had stopped trusting itself. So like signals are not getting through. Um, and then the medicine allows you to actually trust and, and hear what's that inner voice you were talking about and suddenly realize, you know, a lot more things than you. Re and another thing that I find that it does is puts you in touch with your instincts. That's another thing that kind of gets civilized out of us. But um, you're suddenly aware that you, 
you know, like, let's say you were going to stalk an animal, like, you know how to, <laughs> right? right? You're not, right. you don't, you don't need to like start with a book and it's like the top 10 ways to stalk an animal. It's like, check your footwear. You don't like need to go through any of those <laughs> things. Like, you know what to do. It's instinctive. Um, and all yeah. that stuff, you know, that, that stuff from the brainstem gets brought to the surface too. But yeah. But yeah so how it, is it used in conjunction, you know, with the hunt and, and the instances yeah. you're talking about? In the sacred hunting experience, which is uh, four days and three nights, and um, Mansoul um, does these in different places, Montana, Texas, a couple other places. This one happened to be pretty close by here um, outside of Austin. And so um, the breakdown was really, I mean, the other guys I went with, it was also their first hunt. I mean, these are city folk, man, you know, um, uh, one of, one of whom was a really well-known actor, for example, um, who I'm sure, uh, would want to remain anonymous at this point. But, uh, you know, these are, these aren't seasoned hunters or even outdoorsmen by any stretch, myself included. Another friend of mine came out from LA and, you know, he's a Jewish kid that grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Like he's been doing a lot of firearms training. I think since the COVID stuff happened, he's gotten to be a bit of a prepper, but definitely never taken down an animal. Uh, I probably had the most experience um, interfacing with nature in this way, but still it's been a long time. So there's an orientation, uh, sighting of the rifles. There's, um, you know, a lot of guess for lack of a better term, kind of male bonding and just rapport and trust established because it's probably going to be uh, such a monumental experience for the newbies. Um, and yeah, just a lot of explanation about the purpose of it, the intention of it. There are um, Native American ceremonial practices of, uh, you know, praying on the weapons with the weapons. There's burning of uh, sage and different plants. Um, some people are using sacred tobacco. So it's... Uh, it's, it's very intentional from the word go. It's not just like, oh, we're out here in the woods shooting stuff. You know, it's, it's definitely re really tapped in. Um, so how the people always call um, mushrooms plant medicines and it bugs me because they're not a plant. <laughs> I know, I know, it's hard. How, how, how the entheogens came in, how the mushrooms came in. People call bufo plant medicine. I'm like, it's a toad. Dude, it's, it's a not, toad, okay. bro. <laughs> they eat plants and turn it into 5-MeO, I guess. But anyway, um, this uh, experience, the ceremony itself involving psilocybin was on the second day. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing how, you know, back to that intuition, how I lean into trusting spirit more and more in my life and, and, and have much more discernment around when I'm uh, being motivated or halted by fear and when I'm really just moving through a trust experience. And so what was interesting about the psilocybin coming in on day two was that the first night we went out, you know, there was one rifle and four of us and someone said, who wants to shoot? And I'm like, me. I'm like, why did I just say that? You know what I mean? it's like, <laughs> but again, it's just, it's in my nature. I'm just like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so we went out and um, probably walked for a couple miles on a, on a, you know, private property, a high fence property. And, and I shot the pig and we can go into that on another thread, but um, you know, incredibly moving experience to say the least. And then the next day, it was so beautiful how it was sort of orchestrated and just meant to be this way. Uh, the next day we had the mushroom ceremony. And so um, for uh, mid morning after a morning hunt, uh, which I didn't participate in because I had already uh, killed an animal. Uh, 
you know, there was a ceremony out, out in the woods, kind of, uh, in the, in the brush there. And we drank, uh, essentially a mushroom lemonade. When you mix psilocybin, um, mushrooms in lemons or lemon juice, rather, it, uh, has some sort of biochemical effect on it that, uh, makes it a stronger B come on much faster and C end more abruptly and is shorter in duration because we had a hunt that night as well. So it's kind of middle of the day. I've never, I dude, I, I, you know, you've known me a long time. I sort of think of myself as pretty experienced in that world. I did not know that. I've never heard that before. Oh, it's, and you know, I had, that's a real thing. Oh yeah. I'd heard of it, but I just, you know, in passing, I'd never actually, um, taken the sacrament in that way. And absolutely 100%, uh, what I just stated about it is true. Um, I think each dose was, I mean, it's funny cause Monsa was like, no, it's a pretty light dose. And, and they said it's about two and a half grams per person, which for me would be, I mean, that's definitely enough to dose. get you there, but I'm, you know, typically will take three and a half to seven grams. Like if I'm going <laughs> to seven grams, it, I kind of <laughs> just, <laughs> I don't know. You know, wow. the mushrooms, they're my, they're my, they're my little friends, my family. I and mean, I love mm-hmm. those things in the right set and setting. Of course, I always mm-hmm. want to add, but anyway, we, you know, so I wasn't expecting much. I thought, cool, I'll have a little light, uh, you know, experience here and really integrate with the, the natural world. And, uh, we of course set an intention and my intention was, uh, to, uh, to be shown what this land has to teach me, this particular geographic location that they call Texas in North America. Like, why am I here? Uh, what can I do to serve this land? What can I do to serve the the people and other beings on this land? Um, and also to become more comfortable with and intimate with death. And so having shot my uh, boar the night before, there was a definite, uh, very quick onset of the medicine, much more so than, than I've experienced before because of that lemonade, uh, reaction. And, um, I basically just, <laughs> it's funny, you know, I just kind of in those situations, I don't really know how it's going to affect me and what I'm going to be motivated to do. I've been in nature before and I uh, had a self-led psilocybin journey and just for hours and hours, just played in nature and looked under stumps and observed caterpillars <laughs> and, you know, caught, caught salamanders in the Creek and ate herbs out of the Creek and just rolled around in the mud and just really immersed myself as, as not an observer or participant in nature, but as part of nature. So I was expecting maybe something like that would happen, but really I just laid in the sun with my shirt off. I covered my face cause I didn't want to get sunburned and, uh, and just had a, had a really incredible journey and sort of it was interesting because I didn't really know what to do with myself. I didn't feel like moving or walking around or mm-hmm. interacting with other humans at all, which I typically don't. I, it's always kind of more of an internal experience. But what happened was um, pertinent to the hunting story. I mean, there's a lot to it, but um, it was like I had the opportunity to go up against that edge of death with medicines. And in my experience, there will be kind of a teaser thread that will come into my awareness. Like, Hey Luke, you want to look at this thing? And (laughs) being in my nature, it's always a yes, especially if it's something that I feel like, Oh God, I don't want to go down that road. Uh, And death came up and, um, and not only the experience that I had the night before, but the morning of the mushroom journey, actually, you know what? No, on the morning I did go out on a hunt. It was, um, it was the following morning that I didn't, the hunt I went out on that morning, 
um, my friend David that I brought from LA was the shooter. And he, um, he actually took a shot and injured a pig up on this, uh, sort of, um, a small hill where they were all running about, um, basically, well, I'll tell the story here because it's pertinent to the mushroom experience. So we're doing the Elmer Fudd stocking. We hear in the bushes, right? There's a bunch of pigs. We don't know how many, but there are many. We thought they were down in this little gully, kind of a ravine at the base of this, uh, this rock structure. And so I waited behind, you know, as to not make more noise, et cetera. And they approached where they thought these pigs were and I'm sitting there just kind of observing the sky. This is pre-mushroom journey. It's the, it's the morning after I'd shot my pig. And you and, got that uh, thing of like, I've already got my animal. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like and kind of chilling. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to leave the experience open for yeah, the other guys. And um, incidentally, no Pressures one... Pressures off up. you is what I mean, though. Like, uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and when we get to the story of how mine happened, I mean, it was immediate and just final. Uh, but anyway, that morning, they start stalking this group of pigs and they're really loud. There's a bunch of them. And then kind of gets quiet for a minute. And then I hear kaboom. And then I see pigs just scurrying literally in every direction, including my direction. And some of these are, these are big boars. I mean, there's babies in all different sizes, but I know enough about wild pigs. You don't want to get in their, in their way when they're scared or pissed off. Yeah, exactly. So I see them just, I had no idea they were this agile. They were like mountain goats. Like there's this scaffolding on this, um, this kind of rock formation. And I mean, these are narrow little paths and they're just scurrying in every direction. And that's the first shot. Then all these pigs start running out toward me and the guide who was not Monsel, but the, um, you know, the longtime guide that kind of helps him guide comes running toward me chasing pigs with the nine millimeter in his hand. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm in between, you know, the pigs are in between uh, me and his gun. So I, of course, obviously run out of the way and he just starts firing at these pigs. Wow. Um, Yeah. And, uh, you know, probably in an effort to make sure they don't get to me or to take one down because we are hunting. Um, And so it was, I mean, it was a high, (laughs) I think... (laughs) Based on Josh's reaction, it was a very uncommon, uh, like ambush kind of situation. He said, I've never seen that many pigs in my whole life of hunting going in every direction like that. I mean, it was, it was really crazy, dude. So back to the journey. So they were, um, so you, you had a, you had a handgun incident (laughs) right before going into this journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, man. And not only that, um, you know, I don't think I've had shooting and that experience in the same day before. Well, as I said, you know, things unfold as the way that they're supposed to unfold when you surrender into an experience and you trust your own inner guidance. And I did, you know, that's what was meant to happen that, that morning. And what was difficult about it for me, and this really came up in, facing death in, in the psilocybin journey was that when David emerged, he said that he had hit his pig in the gut and it just went through it and it kept running. And that was, that was tough for me. And then the other shooter, um, hit one of them in the face, like shot him in the nose Mm. and he ran off, you know, they're tough animals, right? Yeah. And so that, that really weighed heavy on my heart. I mean, honestly, it was, to be a participant in what seemed to be at the time unnecessary suffering uh, was a lot to reconcile. And so in the, in the journey, 
as I start to explore into death, oh man, it gets really, it kind of gets into the weeds here, but <laughs> we're going to go there. I mean, it's, it's worth exploring because there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of incredible insights that came out of it. I think one of them was in first looking at the pig that I had shot, which it was so innate and so immediate when that took place. They threw the sticks up. I got them in my sights. His butt was facing me and I waited two, three. He turned to the side, boom, and just right under the uh, shoulder. Mm -hmm. Just perfect shot, boom. A lot of loud squealing. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty intense to hear. Pretty intense to hear yeah. that, huh? That's a haunting sound, actually. Very much so. Very much so. And then I, you know, immediately made me understand deliverance a little bit better. Oh my god! Yeah, right. You remember that scene? It's yeah. like let me hear you squeal like a pig boy. That sound that he makes. I'm like, oh, that's really the sound they make. You know, I mean, I don't yeah. I don't spend a lot of time on farms, and and I hadn't been around a lot of hogs, and then when I've hunted them, now I've I've heard that sound enough to go like, oh wow, that's pretty. That shakes you up. It does. It does. And then I reloaded, took another shot. And, uh, and we thought, cause the guys saw it hit, uh, some dirt or rocks and, uh, and they thought that I missed, but when we ended up um, processing the animal, we discovered I hit it both times. So I ran up to the animal and, um, you know, had a whole experience, which maybe we can save. But, uh, so I was processing that at first and just having the realization. Well, what was that, the experience when you ran up to it? I think that. Okay. Well, let's, let's go. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a uh, linear and sequential, which in this situation well, is gonna impossible. Make it, but, yeah. But we're going to get to your journey where obviously this yeah, has already happened. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. So, um, okay. So pull the trigger, hear the sound. My immediate foremost concern is I don't want this animal to suffer. And so I got to get as close as I can to it safely as possible, as quickly as possible. And in, in the event that I need to take another shot or someone needs to get a knife and, uh, and, and end its suffering. Um, so take the second shot, run up, and then I get about 10 feet away from the animal. And I realize that it's, it's dying quickly. And <laughs> dude, and I'm sure you and maybe any hunters that are, tapped in in this way listening will know when I got up close to that animal, there was this luminous, whew, it always gives me chills to just reflect on this. There was, psychedelic is not the right word because it wasn't a visual thing. It was a felt sense thing, but there was this, this luminous etheric energy in that space between me and the animal that was so powerful. I mean, I could barely breathe and, and just tears are streaming down my eyes and it's not tears of like sadness or guilt. It's a different kind of emotion altogether. It's maybe an emotion that doesn't even have a label. It's just the profound sense of life force changing forms interdimensionally and leaving one portal into another portal. There was a portal that had opened and I get the sense after talking to um, many women that have had conscious uh, home live birth experiences, they describe it in the same way. And even men that have been present, you know, when their child's born uh, that time stops and there's just 
for lack of a better term, there's just God energy in the air. It's just really kind of indescribable. It's ineffable, but I'll, you know, words fall short, but those are the words that I can find for it. And then as this, it's, it's in, I just want to say this piece, I think about yeah. it a lot. It's like, it's weird to think about where you were and what you were doing when that pig was born. And then how you both have a route through space time that you're on that coincides in that moment. And, you know, there's something like you're there doing, you know, getting your sighting in your rifle or you're there doing the ceremony or whatever it is. And, and that hog's out there doing things, but like you're on a collision course. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and then it culminates in that moment. So as you walk up to him, you know, two lifetimes lived, come to that crossroads and there you are like in that moment, you know, it's just, there's something to me about that, that always like that tickles inside me a little bit. I, I did reflect on that. I had that same kind of realization, you know, thinking about what was this guy doing yesterday? What was I doing yesterday? I was yeah, on my way right. here. Like it was a, a collision. That's a very, very uh, accurate way to put it. So I, you know, I'm just overwhelmed by this strange emotion. And, and interestingly enough, the only time I've felt a similar sense have been in some very profound experience, spiritual experiences, um, some of which included plant medicines. Um, there's just, there's an energetic feel to that type of presence that is, is pretty rare, but I, but I was familiar with it strangely. And, uh, so I, you know, as soon as it was safe to approach the pigs, its nervous system was kind of still kicking a bit, even after it had appeared to have died. Uh, when I knew it wasn't going to get up and gouge me, I, uh, you know, went over and just closed my eyes and just put my hand on it and, uh, the, you know, and, and really breathed in the, the very potent, uh, stench of the animal <laughs> yeah. and just, you know, and felt the warmth of the animal and, you know, just tears going down my face. And again, not tears of like, I'm sorry, just tears of like, thank you for participating in this rite of passage with me and for being here when I needed you to be here to have this experience. And, um, and quite a lot of time passed of just very still presence with what was that animal and just savoring the energetics of that moment. And so that was, you know, and then comes the <laughs> realization, uh, this thing's heavy, you know, four, <laughs> four guys there. And, and that, then, then came, you know, the realization like, wow, hunter gatherer people. I mean, I'm assuming one would have just processed the animal on the spot and that's how they would have hauled it away. But there was, there was no, we tried to walk with it for a little while and there was no way we were getting a couple miles back to the main road. You know, here. that whole I thing mean, of like a nice long pole tying the feet up and running yeah, yeah. all through there and you're carrying it on your shoulders or whatever, where you're like, Oh, I get what that's about. One thing you just said that I really like is, and, and hunting, you know, is you have such peak experiences. So I imagine for people, you know, it's like you jump out of planes or something. It's probably hard to recreate that feeling, you know, I've never done that, but I'm guessing, um, similarly, like the experience of walking up to an animal and seeing it, it's, it's a peak moment. And that feeling is hard to, like once you have a sense, like a, 
like it's nothing else really gives you that feeling. But, um, but I also like how, you know, Terrence McKenna, since we're talking about mushrooms, you know, he, something he was always talking about the sacred and the profane. And, um, and I like how, and, and profane, not meaning like swear words, but profane meaning like the, the things that we don't consider sacred, I guess, you know, the, the earthly Mm -hmm. worldly things. But I like when those things collide like that too, because you're having this profound moment, but also you've got to deal with like gravity and like, how am I going to move this thing? Like logistics. And I like moments where the sacred and the profane, because sometimes you get into, if you get into a ceremonial space, there's a desire obviously for, for legitimate reasons to push away all of the profane and only focus on the sacred. Um, and sometimes to me that feels a little like doing ayahuasca in the jungle is a little different. Cause you're like, man, there's like jaguars out here, <laughs> you know, like I shouldn't roam away too far from the fire. <laughs> you know, you, you're forced to be in both worlds at the same time, which I think yeah. was ancestrally probably more how things were. But now we have this thing of like church, like when I go to church, it's everything is only sacred and then you come out and now I drive a car <laughs> like the profane. I, I like when they're, they're together like that and they're integrated with each other. And so that's really a neat way that you describe that to me is like that shift from the sacred moment to like, wow, he's heavy. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And then, and then I remember also having thoughts like, <laughs> it's like, am I not? am I not doing this with enough reverence if we have to go get the quad to pick it up? Like, (laughs) am I supposed to be carrying it? Am I not, am I not holding my end of the bargain, you know, with this, Mm -hmm. with this animal and with this process? Like, am I kind of chickening out now? Cause I don't want my arms to hurt. I mean, honestly, I don't think we could have carried it back if, even if we wanted to without, you know, processing it first. Uh, I think they said it, I don't know that we weighed it, but I think it was around 150 pounds, something like that. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that, you know, that was the night before. And, um, you know, the funny thing about it, Daniel, and I think maybe the most surprising, because as I said, I, the profound nature of the, the feelings that I experienced were new to that experience, but they weren't new feelings. Like I've been in that space before, but what was so interesting about it to me as a takeaway was I actually didn't feel guilty. Uh, I wasn't, uh, put off by the blood, uh, by the smell, by the fat ticks hanging all over the pig, um, <laughs> by the, by the sound of the, um, the gun. It was just, there was no hesitation when I had it in my sights. It wasn't like, Oh, I can't do it. I'm gritting my teeth and like pee in my pants. It was just like this killer instinct, man, just yeah. was like, this is what we're doing. Boom, da, da, dun, boom, boom, done. You know? And it was like, it was actually surprising to me how innate the whole thing was and how natural it felt and how it really wasn't, um, it wasn't emotionally difficult. It was emotionally moving and, and deep and meaningful. And yeah. that it's a good distinction that element of like not wanting to do the gross part or the scary part or not wanting to face any guilt that might come up and or regret or any of those things. It was like, I don't know, for some reason I just kept leaning into it. And then those thoughts about like, wow, am I, am I not being reverent by wanting to go haul this thing out with a, with a quad and, and all of those things. It's like, just kept leaning into it and facing it. And even as I was come to those moments of impasse, 
it was also natural. Well, no, of course, like we go get the quad, like we're not going to carry this thing out of here. It's no longer, you yeah, know I'm I mean? not it's, walking home. Like, is yeah, that it's, and it's also, <laughs> <laughs> and it's also, it's no longer a pig. Now yeah. it's, now it's the former, uh, vehicle of pigness, right? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> treating it like a piece of meat also, which I thought would have felt really creepy, um, you know, there was still a reverence, but then came the practicality of like, this is a heavy thing. We got to get it to another location to get the guts out and quarter it and do the things, you know? So it was just like, even the practical next steps were very innate and came natural, even though I kind of had to be told what to do being right. uh, unfamiliar, um, you know, a sequence of events, etc. But all of it felt strangely natural. And even the next day, and I'm going to kind of fast forward here, uh, as I was still, you know, feeling the mushrooms, uh, you know, the ceremony kind of ended. We went back to the hunting lodge and, uh, Josh, the other guy's like, all right, boys, let's go clean your pig. And I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, like I'm, uh, I'm still kind of in the medicine here. I didn't say that, but again, going back to that inner trust and just understanding that there's a plan at work here that's being orchestrated or rather co-orchestrated between myself, the rest of the guys and the great orchestrator in the sky, uh, it was just like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing now. And, you know, went into the little processing shed and pulled it out of the freezer uh, from the night before and strapped it up. And, you know, just the brightest blood I've ever seen is coming out of its nose and copious amounts. And, you know, Josh had been doing this since he was a kid. It's nothing to him. And he Mm -hmm. puts on some country music and we just start getting to work. this animal, you know, or gutting oh, it and then skinning dude. it. I love those and, moments uh, when I love that work shit, like with the whole group like that and you're all sharing in it and processing an animal. I just, I really like the way that feels like that moment you're describing. I want to be there, you know? Um, I yeah. do want to go back to one thing you were talking about real quick and just about the idea of the quad, because that kind of thinking gets projected onto hunters a lot. I was watching uh, Joe Rogan talk to Colleen Noir the other day about his first hunt, uh, it's a bison hunt, and um, he posts about it. And this he's like probably one of the foremost people in gun culture right now, one of the top guys. And he got so much pushback he was talking about, um, about his hunt uh, from gun people, you know, I thought that was really interesting because you'd think, well, that's an easy transition from gun culture to hunting, but it wasn't. So I'm very curious how a lot of what we're talking about today is going to land with the people uh, who follow you. I'm really curious about that. But anyway, um, what Joe was saying at one point was how, uh, because Kalyan was saying, you know, people were like, well, you, you did it with a gun, like try doing it with your bare hands or whatever, you know, because Joe was saying, yeah, I'll say, he goes, I'll go bow hunting and people will tell me that's not good enough. I should have done it with a rock if I was a real man or done it with my hands if I was a real man or whatever. So there's all these kind of things that people will throw at you, like you're not doing it right because you're using a modern tool. Um, but I find that thinking is so interesting because it's like, where do you stop with that then? Because it's like, it's like, do, can you only go on the hunt if you manufactured your own clothing? Like, are you allowed to wear pre-manufactured shoes or does that take away from it? You know, do you have to manufacture the weapon? Do you, you know what I mean? Like, where does it end? Yeah. Like with yeah. that thinking, like you can never be good enough if you go down that road. I always feel yeah. bad when people start down that road. Cause it's like somebody, like, let's say somebody's texting you going like, this isn't, or they're commenting like, this isn't sacred enough. You used a quad and it's like, dude, you're writing that on a phone right now. 
Like, you know what I mean? Like, how can you, how can you judge like that? It doesn't make any sense. Or like, it's okay when all your food gets trucked in or shipped in or brought in by plane and then brought to a restaurant with, you know, fossil fuels and then you go there and eat it. That's okay, but it's not okay to use a quad to get the hog that you shot. Like, so I find that, uh, cause I'm susceptible to that kind of thinking too. Um, but I find that part really interesting because at some point you have to say like, okay, this is all just, this is just the world we're in. This is the stuff we use and this is our life. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a really, uh, another important distinction because this is another part of the psychology of the experience that I had to, uh, delve into that was a little uncomfortable. And that was that humans are the apex predator and the guilt around us being bestowed with a prefrontal cortex that allows us and enables us to build guns and tanks and bombs and cars and quads. And so it's like, then if if the creator gave me these faculties or engineers or whoever came up with these things, these faculties, um, does that inherently make us wrong or guilty? No. And that's just what I had to arrive at was Mm -hmm. that, okay. Um, a cougar has an advantage over a beaver, right? Strength, instinct, whatever. Mm -hmm. Does that make the cougar wrong for going and, you know, being a a beaver murderer, right? Right. He can only do it if he takes his claws off. Yeah, we were, I mean, I'm sorry, but this is, you know, this is the thing I hit up against. And I was like, well, like I, I can't feel bad for the brain that I was given in this mm-hmm. ape meat suit. Right. Yeah. It's like, also, if you how- wanted to hunt, like, let's say that you, you decided you were going to hunt, but you wanted to do it in that way that we're kind of alluding to, you're going to do it in the old way. You're going to spend almost your entire life building up the requisite skills necessary to get to that place. Like you just won't have success right away, which means you're going to still continue to buy food from the industrial food system Yeah. until, until like, so does that actually make sense? Right? Like, okay, I'm going to build my own bow and I'm going to build my own arrows and I'm going to make arrow points from Flint and I'm going to, but in order to do that, I got 10 years of training I got to do. I'm going to go through all that. Meanwhile, I, I'll, I'll get my food at McDonald's like <laughs> while I'm right. training to do this, like, or I could go out with this equipment and be successful right away. And then if I still want to do that stuff, I can slowly move in that direction, um, following a path of success and feeding myself along the way. Uh, that just makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. And to that point, you know, in the bison field harvest that I, um, witnessed the other day and it was, that's incredible. I'm going to go off topic for a second. I'll get back to the mushroom journey because that's where like the real meat of this, of the realizations I think, uh, landed, but you know, they had this guy named Tim Kennedy, who is, uh, I believe a vet and I believe. Oh yeah, dude, what, I know Tim's work. Yeah. So, I mean, if anyone's going to get a clean he's shot. Still, I believe he's still in the military actually. Oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a sniper. He's a sharpshooter. Like this guy knows guns. And uh, he, he told a story before he went out and we observed him um, uh, killing this bison was that when he was a kid, he was hunting with his dad. I mean, this is how he said it verbatim. He said, yeah, well, when I was out as a kid, uh, one of the first times I went hunting, I didn't get a clean shot. My dad beat the shit out of me. And from that moment on, I never missed again. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he just, you know, that was his experience. And, and so, so he goes out, uh, on a quad and he, they they got close. I, for some reason I thought you'd be, you got a scope 
got a 308, really powerful rifle, shoots, you know, 3,000 feet a second. Like, you're going to be way across the field and and taken out. They drove, like, right up to it, you know, maybe, I don't know, 25 yards. Oh, and wow. they had one, they had one singled out specifically for a reason. And, um, and another interesting thing is I thought, I thought just to cut down on the stress of the observers and the other bison around that he was going to use a suppressor. I, I just, I don't know why I just, I was yeah. expecting a big clack more yeah. so than I was expecting a kaboom. Oh, it was a kaboom. Too. I always and, know with uh, a suppressor whenever I can, you know, whenever it yeah, makes sense to. Uh, I think that I asked him about it and he said, it's kind of because of political correctness backlash that people have weird associations with suppressors because of the movies when people use silencers and, and this kind of stuff. Cause I, I was actually curious and he said something to that effect. Um, don't quote me exactly, but it was like, he just didn't want to get shit for using a suppressor because people don't understand what they are and why you use them. But anyway, to, to the point of, uh, you know, mankind's, uh, advantage with technology. As I went up and experienced the, I mean, it was dead instantly, but the aftershocks of this bison's body uh, processing the death experience, I was sitting there thinking when Native Americans hunted bison, how much more that animal would have been tortured and tormented to eventually be killed. You know, they're going to be riding horses, chasing it, spearing it from multiple angles. They're going to be ambushing them with knives, you know, coming over a hill, a bunch of people on a bunch of bison. I also learned that in some cases in those kind of uh, ambush situations that they would kill so many that they couldn't even uh, oh, run, run, them over, run them over cliffs. Yeah. And that, you know, and that they, they often would have to leave a lot of the animal behind just because they didn't have the mm -hmm. ability to travel with it. You know, and I know there's- No, a, no, no. They used every part of the animal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure when it was possible, that was the case. I mean, it makes logical sense. I mean, I- And in a lifestyle where, where you don't have manufactured goods, like you need to use most of the animal too. But yeah, and those big bison kills, um, you know, you'd have a lot of animals still alive, writhing, broken bodies, broken limbs, piled on top of each other. I mean, the weight of, imagine- the weight of a few bison on top of you, you know? So they're yeah. all in a crush, like at the bottom of those cliffs sometimes. So I, you know, so I see, that's a good point. That's pretty gruesome. So I see the sharpshooter just take, I mean, talk about like a spot on shot, just boom, right through the brain, uh, brain stem actually, like not even just, you know, in and out of the brain, but right down the spine, uh, just incredible accuracy. And I'm looking at that and uh, the way Tim described it was, you know, he said, guys, by the time, because people are kind of freaked out. I mean, I, I wasn't so much, but there were people that have probably never experienced this before. It was out at a place called Rome Ranch. And uh, he said, by the time you heard the shot, that animal was dead. That's you know the thing I mean? is like, if you, if you were shot by a sniper uh, accurately, you would be dead before the report of the rifle could reach you because the round is traveling much faster than the speed of sound. It's yeah. hypersonic. So um, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting component too um, because a lot of times where people, vegans will, for instance, be like, no one should ever cause the suffering of these animals. And it's like, well, no human you mean because their death is typically going to be pretty gruesome and, and you know, many predators are eating an animal while the animal's still in the dying process and they're already eating, particularly wolves and canids, you know? Yeah. So yeah, like I think what you're alluding to is our technology allows us to have a much cleaner kill. Like if you asked me, 
you know, this comes up a lot with the archery and firearms uh, debate. And, you know, one time I heard Steve Rinella put it, I think more succinctly than anybody. He said, if I had to go in front of a firing squad, because people would be like, it's better to use archery. It's more humane, all these things. It's like, not really. He goes, if I had to, if you had to go in front of a firing squad, would you rather be shot with a rifle or shot with archery tackle? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> I'd rather get shot. Thanks. Like, you know, than die a lot of other ways. And so I think, you know, there's some, something very humane about the rifle. Well, to, you know, to the earlier point of me reconciling uh, humankind's technological advantage, advantages and whether or not those are quote and quotes fair, um, you know, I, I was able to reconcile that honestly by, listen, we didn't create our brain. Like whoever made us and put us here, whatever made us, it's designed this way, right? And it's all part of evolution and we've evolved to be able to create these tools which become weapons and use them so that was that was kind of that piece but moving on to the ceremony and when i first started to reflect on the pig that i had shot and you know there were a couple waves of like oh god did you really do that like that was not very kind. Uh, what about no harm? And uh, these type of thoughts started to enter the experience. And I think people that have had these, um, you know, ceremonies will, will understand this, but the way that it usually works with me is sort of like, I'll ask a question using words in my mind. And then it's not like a voice tells me the answer. It's almost like my voice speaking back to me. Yeah. So it's like instantaneous access to the quantum field where all truth is stored, call it an Akashic record of sorts. Right. And so I'm kind of feeling into this and going, Ooh, this is crunchy. Like, Ooh, do I really want to go here? Maybe I should just go play with some flowers. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, Nope, you, you're out here, Luke, you know, do you have the nads to, to look at this shit? Like, are you ready to go? And I'm like, okay, death, what is death? And so profound, man. It's, I mean, what a transformative experience. The answer that I was given was that you're fretting over this death, Luke, and death is a fallacy. Death does not exist. And on its face, that sounds pretty strange probably to some people. But when I was with that animal as it died, quote, end quote, again, what was transpiring as I was shown was not anything dying, but rather consciousness changing form and Mm -hmm. consciousness itself is life and consciousness cannot be extinguished in any way on any plane. Consciousness comes in and out of physical form and we perceive that to be an animation of life And that could be used, of course, as a gross justification for, cool, why don't we just go murder a bunch of people? You know, I mean, I I could see how that would spin um, some folks out that don't share the perspective or can't contextualize it. But it was so meaningful to me because, as you indicated earlier, you know, our fear of death of us because of the egoic structure and our instincts and all of the things that nature put in us to keep us here as terrestrial beings for as long as we can uh, you know, that's the worst fear. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was not only 
you didn't cause death because death does not exist in the ultimate reality. But it was also, Luke, you can't die either. Right. When you leave your, <laughs> you know, when you leave your body, this thing you're so afraid of all the time and making all these preparations to avoid, uh, you can't die either. Your consciousness is going to leave the body that people call Luke at some point, but you're not going anywhere because there's nowhere to go. And and I think really having had um, a few at this point experiences with five meo DMT, um, the Bufo Toad, as as you you're the first person ever told me about that. Actually, I remember asking yeah, cool. you, and and at that time I was like. I'm never doing that shit. Actually, I, I remember, you know, it's funny about that conversation. We were, I remember exactly where I was. I was on the 101 freeway in Calabasas, right where the Erwan food store is there. Mm-hmm. And I remember this is before I'd ever done any plant medicines. And I was, you know, sober for 20 something years at that point, having had a lot of issues with addiction in my past, as I said earlier. Um, and I said, and you explain the experience, like this peak experience of Bufo. And I said, well, you know, it only lasts like 20 minutes. You said, yeah, you're pretty much, you know, back to normal within 45 minutes. And I said, well, don't you want to just keep doing another hit? You know, and you were like, (laughs) you're like, trust me, (laughs) trust me, you're good for probably a lifetime after one hit, you know, (laughs) but, uh, but I mean, the only, I, I think the closest, well, I know, I think, I know that I have experienced what it means to die in, in the context, which I'm describing wherein, yeah, my body was still breathing and I was, I was still inhabiting this body in the DMT experience, but I'm and on all of all of the occasions I've done it. There are a few minutes where there's no longer like a single point of consciousness as a me, as a witness observer yeah. <laughs> of the phenomenon of the experience. Right. Diffused I don't, throughout, you're just like yeah. diffused, but you're still not, conscious. <laughs> yeah. You're not a thing anymore mm. in those moments. You are everything. And that's a whole other thread. But and it's to, so hard if you're listening to this and you've not had an experience like that. It's so hard to know what you mean by that, but I know what you mean <laughs> by know. that, you know, because I've I had know. the experience of coming back from DMT. And I, I mean, for me, it's like usually a 60 seconds maximum experience or something, probably less, but I come back and I'm almost like, oh man, I'm Daniel. <laughs> oh shit. Like, like the guy on my yeah. license is back, you know? Damn it. Like all the whole, because it's such a pleasant experience to have that timeless uh, awareness without ego associated to it. Oh, it's, yeah. it's a very blessed experience. And so yeah. you come back and you're kind of like, oh yeah, mired in the flesh again, you know? Yeah, it, it is uh, a, a tough one to reconcile uh, in many ways. But t- to the point of, you know, this realization that death is not real, it does not exist in reality. Um, those earlier experiences helped me to not have this realization as a foreign concept, but something that was very visceral and real, mm-hmm. because like that pig had. Uh, merged into the allness of the fabric of consciousness and is no longer a single pig. Well, I've shared that experience to some degree, maybe not all the way in this lifetime. Um, So this realization during that psilocybin journey um, was massive, massive life-changing perspective. And, And I think I could have arrived there through meditation and just introspection and really processing the experience. But because of the acceleration 
um, and timelessness of that exploration, I was able to go into it much deeper and faster and arrive at the final conclusion in seconds. Yeah. When, when the inquiry was presented, the answer was like, boom, here you go. And then there was some unpacking and um, a deeper exploration of that realization. But man, how liberating, right? Even to come back out of that and be like, okay, I'm a person again. There's taxes, there's lockdowns, there's all this crazy, you know, humanity uh, around that I am going to experience again. And also the needs and, you know, wants, desires, aversions, all the things of the body and the ego, it's all coming back. But just to have that glimpse and then be able to to hold that was powerful. But what wasn't uh, as liberating was really after I was reconciling the death uh, or perceived death of the pig uh, in, in, in my case, then I started looking into the injured pigs from the ambush that morning. Oh yeah. And that got sticky. That was, that was tough because uh, I participated in, in uh, suffering and I started, and we're out about a hundred yards. I'm laying a hundred yards away from where these pigs were shot and injured and ran off. And so they're around me somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm thinking on the other side of that rock, is that pig that got shot in the nose now just lying there suffering and it's getting infected and he can't smell anymore to find food. And, you know, I'm totally like kind of spinning out on this whole thread and, um, to, to make a, a, you know, a many hour, um, inquiry, uh, short enough to fit on a podcast, uh, that led me into <laughs> karma and that, mm. you know, it wasn't that we chose those pigs. It's that on some level they chose that experience and they were exactly where they were for a purpose that day and things unfolded. And this might sound crazy to people, but it's just my experience that me being there, me laying there in that moment, me witnessing the ambush, the injuries, uh, those pigs scurrying up the rocks. It takes a really zoomed out perspective to know Uh, on the level that I felt that I knew and know now that all of that unfolded with absolute perfection and that in the sort of theater of the physical experience that that was all for the betterment and benefit and evolution of each of us humans and all of those pigs. That is to say, I mean, there's just so many ways you could pick it apart, but perhaps that little family or families of pigs now is going to be better informed to avoid predators like humans or, you know, (laughs) uh, that pig might've been sick or, you know, it's like, I mean, there's just so many, my mind was just like exploring so many different facets of it, not in an effort to distinguish the, um, you know, the guilt or like wiggle out of it or find a justification, but really in a very broad, open-minded state Mm -hmm. to just look at all angles possible. And in that medicine space, all angles are simultaneously available to explore. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, sitting here today, I, I don't know that I'm glad things unfolded in the way that they did, but I have been able to reconcile the big picture of it. And also that, you know, if those animals were to die at the hands of uh, a predator out there, It'd probably be in much worse shape than coming across us three knuckleheads with guns. You know, so there's, it's just you know, it was it, that was the mushroom journey. It was it was profound. And then, as I said, uh, because of that, the the um, lemon juice preparation, uh, it did wear off 
quite rapidly, but I have to say, after all of the things I just described, I thought it was going to be over pretty soon. <laughs> my friend, my, my friend came up to me and he was having a bit of a hard time. He was having what could classically be called a bad trip. And, uh, you know, I brought him there. He's a bit younger than I, our relationship has been kind of a mentor mentee relationship. And so Monsal's like, Hey, he needs your help. And I'm like, Oh, I got this. He comes over and man, his face is just like morphing into the background. And I realized <laughs> I was tripping Balls. I mean, I was in an extremely deep medicine place and, uh, you know, worked with him on exploring some things he was struggling with. And, you know, I was like, oh my God, I thought I was just about, it was about to come out of it. But when another person was introduced, yeah. especially, <laughs> yeah. you know, as they were introduced, like in kind of a weird place. And I was like, am I going to have a bad trip now? There was like this <laughs> moment. Uh, and I just breathed, you know, I, when I have these experiences, the key for me is always back to the breath and I breathed and I just loved on him and talked to him. And then, and then it kind of wore off uh, fairly quickly, but I was still definitely in the zone when we went in to process the pig, as I described earlier. And that was, I mean, that was very surreal, but again, like shooting the pig that I shot, um, I wasn't grossed out. Uh, I didn't feel guilty. I, the only thing I really noticed about processing that animal, Daniel, which is so true. I mean, I'm sure you understand this. You do it a lot, but the, the takeaway was really like, holy shit, this is really hard work. <laughs> you know, I was just like, <laughs> I was like, man, I'm sweating. Yeah. This is not yeah. like, this, you don't just like, <laughs> yeah, you don't just like cut, you know, cut the, uh, you know, the hide in a couple spots and just peel it off. I mean, it was like, Holy crap, this is, well, um, you know, like on a white tailed deer, you can usually just, you know, you kind of pull away a little bit and then you can just get your elbow on there and rip most of the hide right off. But like a hog, it's just, man, they're tough. Yeah. And the, you know, and the smell and, and stuff, it was, it was, it was intense. It was, it was a lot of work, <laughs> but I, you know, and I think we've talked about this before on shows we've done on each other's podcast where, you know, we're looking at our relationship to seeing the inside of animals as being formed by horror movies and violent television. So when you see guts or you see blood or testicles chopped off or whatever, you know, I, I chopped the head off this pig. I mean, like it was interesting to see how quickly I was able to tap into my human nature and actually discard those old images from watching Friday the 13th yep. as a kid right. and, you know, like being grossed out by it. I mean, honestly, I'm someone, I mean, I eat a lot of meat, as I said, I don't even like touching hamburger. Like it grosses me out to even like <laughs> touch like raw meat and like cleaning fish. I mean, I'm just like, I get skeeved out by it, uh, you know, because I, I didn't, I didn't grow up uh, yeah. on a ranch or as part of a hunter gatherer tribe where you're breastfeeding and you look over and you see chickens being beheaded all day long or, you know, these kind of things. Um, but strangely in this situation, I think the tail end of the mushroom experience helped with this. It was so kind of, it was so surreal that it, it really helped me to acclimate to it so quickly. And I think because these medicines have a tendency to really bring you back into your true nature and discard so many of the, um, so much of the scaffolding of what used to be normal because everything becomes so sort of abnormal in those spaces. Um, I really just felt into it and I actually dare to say I enjoyed it because it felt <laughs> so, it felt so normal. 
Like, yeah. This is what you do. It wasn't yeah, like, exactly. oh my God, this is gross. There's blood on my hands and, you know, it's bile just sprayed out and all the things. It didn't remind me of a horror movie. It wasn't scary. I didn't feel guilty. I wasn't grossed out. It was just a lot of work. I was Life like, shit, earth, man. Yeah. I was like, wow. And I got so much reverence and respect for the ancestors that came before me that didn't have machinery and, you know, butchers and grocery stores and all sharp things. flake of stone, dude. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's crazy. Imagine doing that job with a flake of stone. I mean, it's so well, let, I want to ask you, I got coming up on the end of our time here, but I'm curious about two things. One, did you, did you get the meat back yet? And, um, or did you bring meat home with you or did, or did it go to a butcher? Um, but do you have the meat and are you enjoying it? And, uh, and I'm also curious, like if that where this is all headed for you. Well, we haven't gotten the meat back from processing from our hunt, but we did eat a lot of uh, boar on that weekend that was from prior hunts, prior recent hunts. Um, and, you know, actually really, one of the guys didn't really like the flavor of it. <laughs> the Jewish guy, I don't know, maybe that, maybe that had something to do with it. He eats bacon, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> it's ironic. <laughs> yeah, just not just being funny, but... Um, I, you know, I, I kind of liked the taste of it, but, um, it was, it was quite tough. I mean, you know, again, the, the labor involved in actually, you know, taking it into your body was uh, a lot. It's, but you know, maybe it's just cause it was cooked a certain way and not a certain yeah, way, but, uh, I, but I, I definitely I plan think on. That's probably it. Cause I, I'll, when you get the meat, let's talk. Cause I would love okay. to walk you through some of the things that I do with it, you know, but I am looking forward to it. And I, you know, I really, um, I respect Monsel so much, you know, when he's at home, I guess he goes out to restaurants here or there, but he only subsists, uh, uh, largely like you do on, um, meat that he's hunted, you know, and I just, I, I respect that a lot. And of course, want to honor, uh, honor the animal that, that I killed and, you know, make uh, use of it. Um, so that's, that's that piece. You know, there was a little part of me that was like, I kind of wish I got an axis deer because I probably feel like I would enjoy <laughs> that meat a little bit yeah. more. Uh, but I had the experience that I was, I was meant to have, you know, period, oh, man, so it's funny for me because the hogs for me are such a treat because I have so much deer and uh, bear meat and uh, fish and all of that. But what I don't have is like, if I'm going to go out to a restaurant, right? It's like pork's interesting to me on a menu because I have so little of it in my life. You know, it's like beef isn't interesting to me. I got deer for days, you know, yeah. fish isn't that interesting to me. I harvest fresh fish all the time. And, you know, also, but it's always like hog is what is so having a little bit, I'm kind of rationing out what I have right now, but I'm, I mean, I'm really loving it. Um, but you know, that said, like figuring out what to do with it's important. I'm going to call you honestly, cause I don't want to, I don't want to waste it. And I actually yeah. really want to enjoy it. So I know you're, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you've got culinary skills, uh, light years beyond mine. So I'm definitely going to hit you up on that. Yeah. And, and by the way, like, you know, in the crock pot, making yourself carnitas is a, a pretty surefire thing to, uh, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That, and then grinding it, um, especially if you can get some venison and, and man, a 50, 50 pork and, uh, you know, wild hog and, and deer grind is, it's really good. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you just went and observed this bison hunt, you know, you went on, uh, you, or at least, uh, this bison harvest, you know, you, you, you went on this hunt. Um, is there any future in this? Do you see this as something that you'll, you know, put away and, and kind of was in experiential for you? Um, or is this something you see yourself doing again in the future? You know, it's funny. I thought about that 
while I was out for that weekend, like, is this going to be a thing? I mean, I, I felt like a dork. I had this really like brand new expensive uh, camo gear. You know what I mean? It's like total classic <laughs> newbie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I did my dad sending me his custom uh, hunting rifle. That's, I mean, just incredibly. In what? Uh, what's that? What's it chambered in? Uh, 308. Nice. Yeah. And he's got, you know, it's got $5,000 scope on it and the whole thing. I mean, yeah. it's just yeah. incredibly powerful and, uh, and dialed in, uh, you know, I just built it himself basically. So he's going to send that to me. And actually he texted me the other day and he's like, Hey, your other brother's moving to Idaho. You know, my brother Cody, he's like, and he's definitely going to be hunting. So like, are you going to be hunting? Oh, right on. <laughs> he wants the gun if you don't. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do yeah, it. Yeah. I want it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Good for but, Cody, Idaho. Huh? Yeah. 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 He's, yeah. He's leaving California. My other brother, uh, left California. He's in Colorado and he's going to be, um, if, if he can, you know, um, travel permitting, uh, going back to Columbia where he spends about half his time. But anyway, um, you know, I was thinking about that and I thought, you know, it's, it was, you know, as I said, it was an edge for me. And even though I leaned into it and I think I pushed the edge in every way and explored every facet of the experience, I don't think that I walked away going like, man, can we do this next weekend? Right. Um, but I think that's also just because it's not because like I didn't like hunting. It's more, it's work, right? Mm -hmm. It's like stalking oh, yeah. animals is not, you're not just hanging out, chilling, jumping in the creek, drinking spring water. Like all the things I do when I immerse in nature are very leisurely and fun. <laughs> and so, you know, when I think about going out on the landscape here in Texas, it's like, well, I don't know, like, do I want to go to work? I want to just go find some creeks to jump in and have fun, you know? So when I thought about it from that perspective, I was like, I don't know, you know, but, um, I, I sensed that it, it will be something that I'm going to continue to do in some capacity. Um, but I was kind of waiting to see, am I going to be totally sold and become yeah. like Daniel and just be like, this is my thing now. And I didn't get that sense, but, um, at the same time it was like, yeah, you know, this is, this is a meaningful experience. Yeah, and there's something um, there for you. Yeah, definitely. So, and, and also just still, I, I'd rather just go get my own meat than, you know, have any chance of participating in any kind of unconscious factory farm situation, even though, you know, I'm, I'm very particular about where I get meat. Um, you know, when I buy it for myself, I really do like the idea of being, um, you know, self-supporting in that way. And, yeah. and one thing I'll add too, is a takeaway that was extremely empowering and why I think I would be further motivated, uh, to just get more acquainted with using firearms, um, you know, becoming a better shot, even though, you know, first time or luck or what I was pretty good shot that night, but, um, is just the empowerment of knowing if the shit hit the fan in the world that if I have some ammunition and a firearm, like we're eating. Yeah. <laughs> and not only because I know like where to shoot an animal, how to stock an animal, et cetera, but also how to process it. That was a huge uh, value to me because I wouldn't know what to do. Like I'd probably puncture the kidney and like spoil the meat and just be a dumbass, you know? So it was actually really cool to learn that. And then I witnessed that again with the bison too. I watched, I mean, damn, you want to talk about an incredible animal to process. I mean, yeah. like 1300 pound bison strapped up to wow. a trailer. Like it's guts were the size of like three people, you know, yeah. Yeah. just crazy. So, um, you know, having an understanding of the anatomy and just how you, um, you do that work is also really empowering, you know, just knowing like, okay, I might not become like an every weekend hunter, but when I do it, it's something I can get better at. And, um, 
you know, do with, with more precision and, um, you know, learn a craft that's uh, for me, a lost, a lost art in my lineage. If I didn't do it and if my brother didn't do it, it would have stopped with my dad. Yeah. And I'd like to take you out on some, uh, like, I'd like to take you squirrel hunting where, you know, because like the guns you're you're carrying around like a 22 LR. So like a a lightweight rifle, it's very, it's much more leisurely. You're killing many more animals. So you're getting more opportunities yet. You're, you know, the work is very low, uh, with, you know, and then the meal is incredible. Right. Uh, so I'd love to do something like that with you. Like, oh, because, yeah, man. You know, because the bison, you're on like the biggest end of things and hog, you know, is a medium sized game, but it'd be cool for you to experience some of the small game stuff and um, stuff that isn't as as much to deal with, you know, like yeah, you come home yeah. with a few squirrels and it's just like not a big deal. You know, it's not like you've got to process a bear. That's a really good point. And I love that idea because uh, that was another thing that was surprising to me. You know, we, we hiked in, like I said, maybe two or three miles or something. And since I was, you know, self-selected as the shooter, they're like, well, you're carrying the rifle, man. And like, after a couple of miles, I'm like, damn, man, you know, I didn't Fuck want this to be, rifle. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to be a wuss and like, you know, Hey, can you yeah. carry it? And then when it's time to shoot, I'll take it back. You know, you don't yeah. do that. Uh, but I was like, damn. And you know what it gave me? I mean, I already respect. <laughs> like you got a, you got a caddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Trust me across my mind. I'm like, where's that quad? Uh, but it also, I mean, that particular element, and this is, you know, just another one of the the many benefits of the experience, but I already have so much reverence for military personnel, law enforcement. I mean, you know, humans that have gone to war, whether the causes were just, and I agree with them, uh, the intent, I think, with the people that go to war is inherently good. Um, that's just, you know, it's a necessary evil uh, for where we are as a species and the inability for us to get along with other people. Um, but man, I'm thinking about God, you know, I'm like so sort of fragile that carrying a rifle for a couple miles is really <laughs> taxing on my body. And you think about, you know, people in combat, man, they're carrying 60 pounds. They're wearing gear. armor, dude. They're wearing yeah, armor. I mean, you know, going <laughs> the, through mud desert. and mud and rivers and yeah. heat and cold. Yeah. And I was just like, holy shit, man, I'm so mm-hmm. grateful for you know, for military that have come before me and present that they have People made that kind of sacrifice, suck, man, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's like, like a whole other level of human yeah. and I, you know, have so much um, respect. So that was another piece of it too. Like, man, hauling around gear is like also yeah. not easy. <laughs> man, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever had such um, a parsed and nuanced conversation about a first hunt. Um, the amount of thoughtfulness and, um, the amount of detail in which you've been able to, uh, reflect on this and pick it apart, uh, makes for a really interesting conversation. So I really appreciate getting to hear, you know, this version of it, you know, we talked once a little bit before, but I, you know, hadn't, we just kind of did like a rough through one night on the phone, but like getting to really hear about all of these parts of the experience is really cool because internally I can relate. Um, but you know, you don't usually hear these conversations at, in, in, in su- at such great length and with such nuance. So thank you, Luke. Thank you, man. It's, it's, you know, this is part of the integration process is, is sharing these experiences and, you know, thank God for podcasting and other mediums like this, because it's, uh, it's another lost art, right? Uh, we're not at the campfire talking about today's hunt and, uh, the, the arduous physical nature of it or the things we had to work through emotionally or spiritually. I mean, again, through evolution, these are the conversations that shape who we are as a community. And so 
it's a huge uh, gift to me to be able to share. And thank you for allowing me so much time to, you know, articulate so many nuances of the experience because it, this is how I integrate it and make it part of who I am and actually use that yeah. grist for the mill to, to grow and evolve. So, you know, thank you for, thank you for your curiosity and, um, you know, and willingness to have me on to talk about it. And I can hope that it might inform uh, some other people that are sort of hunter curious or even, for, <laughs> you know, yeah. even for seasoned hunters to yeah. perhaps give them, um, uh, a different perspective on it and hopefully enlighten them to some other ideas around this, um, this amazing practice that might serve them and the animals that they're hunting. Uh, give us a plug for, you know, where you want to send people. Yes, sir. Well, my, you know, the mothership is, uh, the lifestylist podcast uh, that we talked about earlier. And, uh, that's really the bulk of my work. You know, every interview I do, there's a YouTube video. I live stream them. Anytime I have a conversation, they're about this long, you know, a couple hours and they're, they're quite deep in nature as this conversation was, uh, even if we're talking about biohacking or physical health on some of the shows, they're, they're, they're deep dives, uh, definitely not for the faint at heart. And, uh, you can find them wherever you can find podcasts. And then my website is uh, lukestory.com, L-U-K-E-S-T-R-E-Y. And there's links to everything I do there. My uh, online store where I link to all my favorite uh, health and wellness products. And then on social, I'm most active at Luke Story on Instagram. And I'm a, I'm a live streaming beast. Uh, it, for example, you know, during this hunting trip, I mean, I was posting constantly, just sharing the experience with people. And um, I think people like the uh, kind of behind the scenes realness of my approach to social media. It's very unedited and raw and, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I'd like to show behind the curtain, you know, like you have an edited podcast. It's really pretty. The video is edited. You have your little bumper, but I love the social media platforms, at least while I'm not kicked off of them uh, because you can just be so raw and real and spontaneous. And I, I think um, I'm probably a fun follow for people that are interested in the things that I cover. Well, we are headed uh, to, uh, Vani and I are going to the range actually in a few minutes here. We've got a, a session booked at the Laser Simulator, which is oh, really cool. cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Ammo's so short right now, you know, I'm rationing what we have to yeah. practice. But uh, so we're going to go do this laser thing. It's it's a pretty cool game, really. Sweet. But, uh, we do want to do that. Um, I promise to not call this podcast a hunting story, S-T-O-R-Y. <laughs> but I, I, I did, te- I did tempt me a little bit. So I'll come up with something more clever than That's that. That's funny. But, uh, I thought hey, it would be something, I thought it'd Go be ahead. something like, you know, the newbies first hunt or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be like psychedelics and hunting? Question mark. Uh, no, this is great, man. I really appreciate it. And I hope that um, you and I can get out to hunt together, man. So, um, you know, I'm down. when it's possible, come out this way and, and say the word, together. dude, say the word, right, or man. you come out this way. I don't know how many squirrels well, we have, but there's a lot of damn animals out here. Yeah, man. I would really, I, I will take you up on that too. So let's make a plan. Sounds good, brother. All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Yeah.